Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You know, what, young women now, you, you, you could probably speak to some of this from your own experience, but I, I know talking to my, my, my son's friends more generally, there's a really strong script for young women then. It's a very different script to the one their mums had. Their mums or grandmothers were, it was, you're going to be a wife and you're going to be a mother. Maybe if you work, it will be part-time, but that's your primary role. A new script for women is get educated, become economically independent, become empowered, and make sure you can stand on your own two feet. It's a really positive, powerful script for young women now. It's fantastic and wonderful in my view. But what's the script for men now? We've torn up the old male script for good reason. In many, what's the new male script? Where's the where, where's the sense of you know ambition and where, where are the messages we're sending to our boys about about their education and their independence, their empowerment? And the answer is we're not. And so then they end up drifting, uh, and it's not their fault; it's our fault. It is my pleasure to have joining me on Forward, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, the author of the incredible and important new book, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It, Richard Reeves. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me on, Andrew. Looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Uh, Congratulations for taking on this important topic. So Brookings, just a level set for everyone, Brookings is generally considered the number one think tank in all the land. And you are uh, a wonk, uh, uh, an economist. Like, what was your work in prior to examining uh, what's happening with boys and men? Yeah, I think I have to correct you already, Andrew. I think it's number one in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Right. Just like the the Brookings con people are going to kill me if I don't correct you. It's like the global number one thing. thing. Um, and interesting, when I when I moved to the US from, from the UK in 2012, I'd served in the, the government over there, my wife said to me, what is, what, where would you most like to work? Like, where's the dream job for you? And I said, scholar at the Brookings Institution. Uh, and I'm really fortunate that that is exactly where I landed. Uh, and that's because the Brookings Institution is, is nonpartisan, it's authoritative, our values are quality, independence, and impact which means that we can do our work without looking over one shoulder or the other, worrying about which senators are going to call you, but just you know, do the best you can. 
Uh, and my work previously is focused mostly on, on economic inequality and lack of upward mobility. What are the barriers to people being upwardly mobile? And that was true in the UK and now in the US. And that gets into issues of class differences in the US, obviously race differences in the US. But that then led me to this new focus because I on boys and men, because as I was doing that work, I just kept stumbling across these inequalities that actually were, were troubling and which didn't go the way you would expect to go. When you talk about gender equality, you presume you're always talking about women and girls. Sometimes you still are, but increasingly we now have to look at the problems facing boys and men. And so that that my work on inequality and family and, uh, and class led me to the new focus on boys and men. So you open the book um, with the fact that some people tried to warn you off this topic. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but then you end the book saying that everyone actually is interested in the topic, uh, <laughs> which made it feel like there's this undercurrent, um, but people hadn't publicly uh, spoken about it and kind of were afraid to. Yeah, I, I, one of the reasons I ended up tackling the subject uh, was because so many of the people that I was talking to, this was the issue, right? The school gates over the dinner table, over at lunch break. Uh, people were talking about their sons, they were talking about their brothers, their uncles, and just how they were struggling either in school or in the labor market. But particularly if they were on the on the center left, that wasn't something they took out into public. That was something that would remain private. So they felt like there was this gap between a lot of the private anxiety people are feeling, including among many liberals, and the public discourse around this issue. And so it was almost like, it was like, it was the inequality that dare not speak its name, at least yeah. on the centre left. And and so it was into that space that, I, that I, re I really felt I was trying to, to some extent, bridge the gap between the school gate conversations and the political conversations where there's really been a deafening silence, especially on the centre left and then a weaponization on the right, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, so let's get this out of the way really quick. Um, I, I wrote a book, The War on Normal People, that delved into some of the issues that are facing men, particularly as their most common livelihoods have been uh, automated or globalized uh, away. Uh, and it's not a zero-sum game where you can be concerned about boys and men and uh, still be very much for uh, elevating women in areas that they've been uh, discriminated against in or marginalized or generally uh, advocating for gender equality. The argument you make is that, look, gender equality is gender equality in the sense that if there are realms <laughs> that one gender is is really, really falling behind then, for example, boys in school, that also is gender equality. And it's a very legitimate thing for us to be concerned about and try to address. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, you know, credit to you, Andrew, and also you were kind enough to in endorse this book, but your Washington Post piece, uh, I think, was an important intervention. Uh, and you've obviously had Warren Farrell on, on here before and talked to him. And so I think you are one of the one of the few public figures who have been willing to engage in this issue in good in good faith and in, a, in a, what I would say is a positive way, which does avoid exactly that zero sum framing you've just described, which is this if we're presented with this choice, like whose side do you want effectively, right? And that even raising the fact that there are some areas where boys and men are struggling means that you have to stop paying attention to the areas where women and girls uh, are struggling. It's just, it's a nonsensical false choice, classic, a classic example of, of culture war uh, paralysis. And actually, you know, my wife, for example, is trying to raise money right now 
um, for a startup. And you, know, you, you will know some, some of these stories, Andrew, but you know, so I know on a very personal basis that only 2% of venture capital money goes to female founders. Right. I'm reminded of that on, a, on at least a daily basis. And it's true and it's a problem. And then there are other areas we could talk about where there remain no problems and barriers facing women and girls. It doesn't mean we have to then ignore the problems facing boys and men. It's a it's a false choice. And it turns out it turns out people can think two thoughts at once. Uh, our politicians struggle to do that. But ordinary people are perfectly capable of doing that. Yeah, and it's a symptom of our polarized environment where it's like choose a side, and then you know mm. you you wind up in this inflamed environment. Uh, when I was running for president, I became very acutely aware of the issues facing boys and men. And one story that did come across my my desk from Warren Farrell was that there was another Democratic presidential candidate who said, I can't talk about this because I'm in a Democratic primary. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 uh, you know, and, and that that's obviously in my mind, uh, perverse um, and messed up. So let's dig into the problems that you identify. So broadly speaking, it's school and it's work, and you have some prescriptions for each. So let's start with school. Boys are struggling at school uh, from the get-go, essentially K through 12. Uh, the stats are staggering. I will confess that I am a dad of two boys. Uh, mine are much younger than yours. It sounds mm-hmm. like yours are in their early 20s. Yeah. Mine are nine and seven. Um, but the, the data around boys struggling in school and being immature and their brains forming later jives with the experience of just about every parent and family I know <laughs> where if you if you have girls of the same age interacting with your boys, you're like, wow, these girls seem like a hundred times more with it than my boys. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you don't you know you don't like necessarily impugn your boys by saying that i mean like a, a, a lot of folks are having very similar experiences but unfortunately that's playing out um in schools writ large yeah and i think it's it's a a really interesting example of how it took women, the women's movement it took progress on behalf of girls and women to to expose some of these differences and so as you say there are these big gaps so you know, a few data points that, that you know well, but uh, in college, for example, the, the college gap is huge now. The, the, the percentage difference between the women getting four-year college degrees and men is now 15 percentage points in favor of women. And that compares to a 13 percentage point gap in favor of men in 1972 when Title IX was passed to help women and girls. Among those with the highest GPA, finishing high school, two-thirds of girls, and among those with the lowest GPA, two thirds of boys. In the average school district in the US now, girls are almost a grade level ahead in English and uh, and have matched the boys in math. So this there is sometimes this idea, well, girls are better at some things, boys are better at other things. Well, basically now that's not true. Basically just girls are better at everything. Um, and that great catching up and overtaking has exposed the ways in which the education system actually doesn't suit boys very well. And particularly for the reasons that you've identified. And again, I like I have three boys, raised them through adulthood. And it is just a fact that they the parts of their brain do develop a little bit later on average than girls. And it is the bit of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, that is the bit that says, finish your homework, don't go to don't go out partying. Oh, and also turn in your homework the next day. Oh, and also 
maybe study for that test because that test will affect your GPA, right? And your GPA matters for your college admissions and getting into college might matter for your future. So it's about future orientation. And there just is, there's a difference between boys and girls. And it's it's one of those things where, you know, I've got all this evidence from neuroscience and, you know, the all the, the psychologists, and then you, you share all that with teachers and parents and principals and they go, well, duh. Like this basic fact is not not surprising to them, but we ignore it in our education policy. Like why why if that fact is so obvious to everybody, do we ignore it in the way that we structure and time education for boys and girls? Yeah, so you have a have a number of recommendations, three big ones, which I all agree with, frankly. Number one is the most interesting and I think has gotten the most publicity, which is redshirt the boys. Let's just have boys start school a year later. Uh, the other two, just so people have a sense of it. Um, it is to uh, invest in vocational education. Uh, and the, the third was drug my memory. Uh, more male teachers. Uh, we, more we male have fewer, teachers, yes. Have, and this is just in education. Those are the three big education ones. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so what has the response been to redshirting uh, boys for a year, which I think is a great idea. Uh, you know, I've advocated for a gap year. Um, mm. as an example, heading to college because the maturation serves people mm. really well. Yeah, that is that is an alternative that people have proposed, uh, including in the UK, there's been this debate about should you, know, should you have this gap year, especially for boys. But my view is that we should just start earlier. Right? If, we, if we know that that gap is coming, if we know that developmental gap is coming, and it's particularly wide in adolescence, why don't we just anticipate it, right? So you, start the boys your, 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 your idea is better than doing the gap year later because a lot of the data shows that the boys are struggling earlier on and you want them yeah. to actually have a foundation, enjoy learning, not have behavioral yeah. problems, et cetera. Yeah, I, I mean, my view is that you know, rather than letting them fall behind and then try and catch up later, why don't we try and help them keep up, right? It's, it's easier to keep up than to catch up. And so I think if we start them in, in school a year later, it means that just developmentally, they'll be closer to equal. Right? So one of these weird things, like the chronological age that we choose to start kids in school is very arbitrary. Uh, it's a proxy for development. But it turns out that it differs on average between girls and boys. Uh, and so let's actually just bake it in from the beginning. I think it's one of these, it's one of those suggestions that sounds incredibly radical to a lot of people, except every parent and educator and principal I've spoken to, right? So they all go, yeah, of course you should do that. Like To them, it's blindingly obvious. Um, but of course, it, it would need to be piloted and evaluated. But that's the one, I think that's interesting. That's got some more pushback. Interesting, the other, the others, in theory, the idea that we should spend more on vocational learning and the fact that we should at least try and arrest the decline in the number of male teachers in our classroom. Most people are like, they're on board with both of those ideas. The red shirting one is a little bit more controversial, I would say, uh, and there are good arguments against against the policy as well as in favor of it, which I try to take seriously in the book. Um, but overall, what I'm being pleased by is the when people are disagreeing, what they're saying is, I don't think that's the best way to help boys. Okay, right, let's have a discussion then about the best way to help boys, but at least we're having the conversation now about boys which means we've accepted the fact that they might need more help.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, it's one reason why your work is so valuable, Richard, is that you, you're an unimpeachable uh, resource. <laughs> you know, like it's it's hard for people to dismiss you out of hand um, the way in this environment. Unfortunately, like a, a lot of folks who stand up and say, hey, there there are a lot of struggling boys and men out there. Um, you you can be marginalized as a crank or like yeah. a neocon of some kind or a culture warrior yourself. Um, where the the data is very clear. I mean, you know, like the 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 struggles are uh, very very um, real. Now, uh, one of the things you just said is that fifty seven percent of uh, college students are now women. Uh, I think it might even be fifty nine or sixty percent in the it's most about, recent class. It's about sixty percent now. Yeah. So having a three to two female to to male ratio um, means that there's going to be a very, very tilted dating market uh, on college campuses. And then it's uh, going to actually persist when you graduate from college. So this is something you didn't talk so much about. Uh, I, I mentioned it in, in my book, mm. um, which is that college educated women essentially do not marry non-college educated men for a whole host of reasons. Um, and so you wind up with a lot of mismatch uh, in the dating market. And this is obviously assuming people are heterosexual. I mean, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, homosexuals. So, uh, you know, that like this doesn't apply um, to the entire cohort, but it largely applies. Um, so you wind up with uh, a whole host of college educated women who effectively don't have mates. Mm -hmm. um, and you also have a host of college educated men who essentially have been primed to be jerks <laughs> because yeah. because what 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 of like like the empirical findings is that if men have advantages in the dating market their behavior towards women gets worse um and then the reverse is true that if if uh women have their pick of guys then the guys all behave a lot better <laughs> or at least the guys who have a chance at the dating market behave a lot better yeah um so so th th this was something that uh i am sure you noted uh, because you did a ton of research for this book hmm. um but it, it was it was something that i think people don't realize is an outgrowth of the mismatch on college campuses people can look at the 60 40 women men say hey that's a little bit messed up 
Um, but it actually has profound downstream effects. Well, uh, it, it might. Uh, one of the reasons why I don't address it is because I'm 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 less convinced than than you are at this point that it is going to be an issue for dating. And I'll I'll say a bit about why. I mean, I think the first thing is like it's very interesting if you talk to admissions officers and they're now on the record about this. If you go past sixty forty uh, in terms of your female male ratio, it starts to affect admissions. It turns out that actually it becomes less attractive both for men and women to go to a very female-dominated campus. And so there's a lot of people that are desperate, they're desperately trying to keep their gender ratio closer to at least at least closer to 60. Um, and that might well be because of just how it feels to be on campus, right? Um, and as, assuming that, of course, heterosexual dating, that it affects, the, for sure it's affected dating on college campuses. No, no question about that. Whether it will roll forward into the labor market, we just don't know yet. It's a bit early to tell. We did just pass a historic moment which is that now there are in most marriages now the woman is more educated than the man and obviously we're going to see an increasing uh, that trend line is going to increase the big question is are women with college degrees really going to prove reluctant to marry a guy without a college degree right historically we haven't had to answer that question because of the historic imbalance we're now starting to ask it i'm a bit less pessimistic than some are i think that I don't think they're going to want to marry someone who's economically disadvantaged as well. But I think it's perfectly possible to imagine a world where you have a woman who's a nurse, say, so she has clearly has a degree in nursing. And I can think of, I have friends in this situation. Is she going to marry a guy who's got his own plumbing business and is making good money? Or is she going to say, no, 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 he has to have a four-year college degree? I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, so I, I'm not as worried about it yet. And then the, the final thing that I'm, makes me more optimistic is that college-educated women and college-educated men, but they're really keen to make sure the kids do well. And one of the reasons they'll marry is because obviously two, two earnings are better than one. They are convinced that fathers and mothers are both important. And so the drive to marriage among the college-educated, the marriage rates are very high among college-educated Americans, really high. I think that's largely because of parenting, and I don't think that's going to go away. So what's happening is people are projecting forward this difference in colleges into the dating market, and and, uh, and I think prematurely panicking. Ask me again in 10, 15 years whether my, my optimism is misplaced, but that's that's for me not really the main reason to be worried about this. I think it's because it's tough, tough to be in the labor market without a good college degree. I will say one thing. I haven't thought about this before, Andrew, but you just mentioned by saying heterosexual, of course does raise an intriguing possibility. The single biggest cause of the rise in LGBTQ identification is the rise in the number of young women describing themselves as bisexual. So you could speculate that if, to the extent that that's the case, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe what you're gonna see is a rise in the number of same-sex uh, relationships as college-educated women pair up with other college-educated women rather than having to trade down. I have no re I have no empirical data to support that, but it's an intriguing possibility. So the other two solutions that you argue for, it was interesting that male teachers do improve results for uh, male students and female students um, show no difference. Um, uh, so it seems like male teachers is an empirical win. And I hope that uh, we do try to get more men into classrooms. And vocational schools uh, seem to help male students um, and less so female students, um, but that is not a reason to not invest in them. 
um, helping male students right. is a major, major win at, at, at this well, point. If, if they're the ones struggling, it comes back to what you said a moment ago, which is like, if you just approach this like in a fairly boring way, which is, huh, here's a group that seemed to be struggling. Here's a, here's a policy that seems to help them. Unlike free college, by the way, which doesn't seem to really move the needle for male college going. Uh, actually, technical and vocational training is a rare example of an intervention where the benefit does really seem to accrue more to boys and men than to women and girls. And you could, you know, you could see that as a bug, but you know, I see it as a feature. Given the current trends facing boys, like why is why is that a bad thing? And so, one of my proposals is to create a thousand new technical high schools. There's about one and a half thousand now. And you know, even with right, pretty you know, pretty uh, big assumptions about federal funding, you could probably create a thousand high schools for about five billion dollars a year with some federal subsidies. That would double the number of students who can go to a technical high school. And five billion is one percent of what the college loan forgiveness program would would cost conservatively, right? So, wow. So for one yeah, one percent of the cost of forgiving college 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 loans, we could create a thousand new technical high schools, and that would take up the number of students in them to about fifteen percent. And the biggest beneficiaries would be boys, and especially boys from working class backgrounds. And so that kind of policy should be on the table. Um, and the fact that it disproportionately helps boys should not be seen as a reason to not do it. It should be a, as a reason to do it, as well as doing a bunch of stuff to help women and girls. Again, back to where we were before, like we can think two thoughts at, at once and we can do two things at once. Now, one of the most interesting findings in your book was that a host of policy interventions don't seem to work. <laughs> yeah. Like if you, you just mentioned free yeah. college yeah. and it turns out that a bunch of girls in Kalamazoo took full advantage of that, um, but boys did not. Yeah. Um, and there were other programs that had the same results, uh, whether it was tutoring or retraining or whatever the heck it was, um, that it, it seems like when you try and help a population uh, broadly, the girls and women are in position to take advantage, but for whatever reason, boys and men, it just doesn't seem to, to click or work. Yeah, this is, I think that's partly because like it's within mainstream education that the a lot of these interventions are tried, but but uh, and it's not much discussed. It's it's well known among the people whose job it is to evaluate these interventions, but it tends to be in like, the final paragraph, and people will say, "Oh, we should do more work on this," but it's not really discussed much. And the free college one is the one that really first caught my eye. So Kalamazoo has a Every kid that graduates from high school in Kalamazoo gets full tuition paid pretty much any college in the state. It's very generous. But more importantly, it's the only free college program that's had a really high quality evaluation longitudinally by a, a, a bunch of scholars from Upjohn. And as, as you just indicated, actually increased the college completion rates for women by 50 percent, which is a massive impact. Uh, and it increased the college completion rates for men by zero literally didn't move the needle overall for men which is an extraordinary finding like making college completely free and so i think that speaks to first of all look the guys are struggling in education generally and so just solving the financial aspect of it doesn't solve the educational problems but i also think it speaks a bit to motivation and incentives you know what young women now you 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 could probably speak to some of this from your own experience, but I, I know talking to my, my, my son's friends more generally, there's a really strong script for young women now. It's 
a very different script than their mums had. Their mums or grandmothers were, it was, you're going to be a wife and you're going to be a mother. Maybe if you work, it will be part-time, but that's your primary role. A new script for women is get educated, become economically independent, become empowered, and make sure you can stand on your own two feet. It's a really positive, powerful script for young women now. It's fantastic and wonderful in my view. But what's the script for men now? We've torn up the old male script for good reason in many. What's the new male script? Where's the where, where's the sense of you know ambition and where, where are the messages we're sending to our boys about about their education and their independence, their empowerment? And the answer is we're not. And so then they end up drifting, uh, and it's not their fault; it's our fault. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you wanna watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And this goes into uh, your analysis of both a left and right approach to the struggles of boys and men. Uh, and you very interestingly characterize correctly, in my view, um, that the left tends to assign uh, accountability to systems for the failures of groups, with the exception of boys and men, where when like if a boy or man screws up, then it's because they're individually noxious uh, or badly behaved and your argument which i think is correct is look like if you're going to apply that framework it should apply to boys and men too and that this is not just a cascade of individual failures <laughs> that they're actually structural issues that if you're serious about trying to build you know a, a, an equitable society you should be thinking about these issues the same way yeah it's a it's a rare this is a, an instance of agreement between left and right although in different ways they do basically individualize the problem. And as you say, on the left, that's that's pretty rare. Typically, the left will point to structural structural barriers, structural problems. But in this, in the case of boys and men, it can be the result of toxic masculinity, or there'll be stereotypes about, well, they just want to watch, they don't want to look at porn and play video games and smoke weed. They're just losers. You know, men are trash, hashtag men are trash, etc. You even saw that in COVID and men were dying in much higher numbers of COVID. That was that was blamed on them and completely unfairly. Or this pejorative term incels, uh, involuntary celibate. Mm. And Bill Maher made a joke, which I could relate to certainly as like a nerdy Asian kid, is that like we all start out as involuntarily celibate. <laughs> <You know? Right. laughs> 
you know, and end up the, you know, the somewhat fortunate among us, maybe, you know, like end up having some opportunities or, uh, you know, like, uh, be able to gain confidence in a particular arena. Um, uh, but then if you don't, then you can get stuck very easily. And you point out the international phenomenon of kind of the shut in men of Japan, of which there are hundreds of thousands. Um, and there it's a documented phenomenon. But in the US, it, it's kind of maligned as like, oh, you're like these uh, incels. And instead of being a sympathetic figure, you're a malignant figure. Mm. Um, now, the, the the danger, of course, is that if you have a real problem, and you, you say this in your book, and I think this is very, very important, is like, look, if you have a real problem, and responsible people don't try and help it, then irresponsible people will just go right in and say, hey, okay, you know, you're, you're um, upset, you're marginalized, here's why. And then they'll drag you down some uh, conspiracy theory, internet rabbit hole and, and radicalize you. And we have many, many young men who are now uh, unfortunately receptive to that because they're at home and angry. Yeah, uh, and I think to that extent, the, the manosphere, as it's sometimes referred to, which is a sort of conglomeration of in, you know, so-called incels, men going their own way, pickup pick up artists. You know, there's this guy, Andrew Tate, who's you know, become a, he's been banned on lots of platforms, but incredible viral videos, which are just sort of this incredible misogyny, um, you know, funny in some cases and so on. But I, I think that that's our fault. We, 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 as in like mainstream institutions, et cetera, have created that market. And of course, if you create, if you create that market, then someone's going to supply it. We've created it by not discussing these issues, not confronting them, not actually acknowledging, oh yeah, here are some issues facing boys and men, and here's a bunch of things we're doing to address them. And so what that means is that when the irresponsible people say, no one cares about you, right? No one cares. Right? So here's a young man, right? You're struggling. You're struggling in the dating market, maybe. You're struggling at school. You're struggling to find your way in the world. And then someone comes along and says, that's because the left hate you. It's because the mainstream media hate you. The elite just think you're toxic. There's enough plausibility to that claim to drag that young man deeper and deeper into the manosphere because he does look around and he doesn't see you know, responsible people addressing his problems. And to the extent that they're addressed at all, it is to blame him. It is to say there's something wrong with you. You're toxic or irresponsible. And there's all these stereotypes. And one of the results of that is greater isolation for young men, etc. But rather than pointing the finger, we should be offering a helping hand. And in different ways, both yes, left and right, they're, they're pointing fingers. There. And, and, and actually, you know, it's particularly frustrating for those on the left to do it, who, who actually, as you said, indicated, make a point of not doing that in other circumstances and saying, look, what's happening here? What are the structures around you? Are the institutions serving you well? You know, what's the script you're following? How are we supporting you as a society? How are we empowering and affirming you as a society, right? And, and then tackling all of those things correctly for people of color or LGBTQ or whatever. But we've got to do it for young boys and men too. The default assumption that we don't is just wrong. If we neglect them and neglect the issue, we have created the circumstances in which men might shut in, check out, or at worst, get pulled into some pretty dark places. And so that, as I, you know, I think it's incredibly important that we take responsibility. We have a cultural responsibility to address this issue. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so we've gone through school. Uh, on the work side, um, you and I both note that we've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, mm. and those jobs were 70% male. Similarly, transportation jobs and 
uh, construction and installation jobs, uh, also predominantly male. And some of these roles are either being automated or globalized away. Um, you had globalization at, I think, 2 million jobs. Um, just one objective fact is that we have 4 million fewer manufacturing jobs in the United States than we did um, at an earlier point in time. And so if 70% of those workers were men, then you have a whole lot of men who now don't have those jobs. Uh, and their next step has been unclear in a lot of communities. There is this work imbalance. Um, and yet at the same time, some of the most visible fields, whether it's finance or tech um, or law or consulting, continue to be male dominated. Um, and so there's this uh, this bifurcation going on that falls largely along educational lines, it falls along regional lines, it falls uh, in different industries. Uh, and the net effect has been that there are many, many men who are on the outside looking in because of a transforming economy, but their struggles have not actually uh, been highlighted or brought to the fore. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think it speaks to, obviously, you've done a lot of work in, in, in this space, uh, and you have you know, your own uh, policy ideas about how to respond to this shock. Right? I think it is a shock. I think you've talked about it in that way. Like this is The labor market has just, you know, the automation in particular, and to some extent, free trade, just massive shocks to the economy, uh, which we're not responding to. We're just, we're just, you know, whatever you think the solutions to that are, whether it's UBI, whether it's, you know, some of the proposals I've gotten here, like the fact that we need to respond, I think, is is the is the most important fact. And you're quite right that what's happened is that these autom both of those shocks have disproportionately affected men, especially working class men, and the adaptation that's required to flourish in the new economy has been one that many men have struggled with. Uh, and I also think it's one of those we haven't really worked on. <laughs> um, women are moving more quickly into some of the newer jobs. They were already in jobs that were more protected from automation and trade in some of the more hands-on type jobs. So they were less affected anyway. But actually helping men to move into and retrain for the new jobs is absolutely right. And here, here I think is where the right actually are quite irresponsible because to the extent that they do engage with the issues of boys and men, it's typically to, to then imagine that they can wave a magic wand and bring back the jobs of the past. So Senator Josh Hawley gave a big speech about men. And at the end of it, he said, we'll have a tax break for marriage, which is bonkers and doesn't work. Um, and we're going to bring back manufacturing. Like, well, where's your magic wand? Senator? Turn back the clock. Yeah, no problem. We have a time machine, no, Richard. No problem. Let's just... I mean, Move it backwards. And it's incredibly irresponsible because what it does is it sends a signal that, yeah, yeah, vote, you know, vote for me and I can bring back the world as it used to be, which of course you can't. These trends continued under Donald Trump, right? There is no president who can jawbone the economy of the 50s back into existence. But what it sells is it, it sells this false perspectives of, of I can uh, rear view mirror politics uh, rather than saying, okay, here are some real problems. Here's how we're going to help you address them. And so to the extent that the right does even, uh, they acknowledge the problems of boys and men, but they typically to either blame feminists, blame women, blame modernity, et cetera, and then say, don't worry, we'll bring back, we'll bring back the 50s, which nobody wants. Even if we wanted it, we can't go back in the time, you know, unless you've got that time machine behind you somewhere. <laughs> you can bring out, send it to Senator Josh Hawley which he doesn't want, by the way. I mean, his own wife is an incredibly successful professional. Nobody, even the most conservative person, doesn't want a world of complete gender equality and really doesn't want to turn back the clock on manufacturing either, I think, even if they knew how to. 
Now, so the marriage rate among non-college educated Americans has plummeted uh, to below 50%, which I think is a very crucial threshold, um, or now a majority of Americans uh, don't expect to get married. Maybe they expect to get married, uh, but they won't get married. Um, and this winds up having some very negative effects on the next generation. Uh, you have a lot of data on boys and girls growing up uh, with out dads. It turns out that dads are a plus. As a dad, I felt pretty good about that. That that that, and more and more people recognize that having uh, a dad present uh, is incredibly important for all sorts of uh, positive outcomes uh, for kids. A and you have a, a number of recommendations uh, in that direction around trying to establish fatherhood as a different type of relationship than a purely economic relationship, which is the way it's codified right now in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, so I agree. There's this, I mean, you pointed there's this huge class gap in marriage, which we kind of alluded to earlier. It's really interesting. And that in and of itself is an important data point that it is the most economically powerful women, arguably in the history of the world, i.e. college-educated American women who are marrying and staying married at the highest rates which is not what Gloria Steinem or anybody else predicted. Even Gloria Steinem just got married. Right? That's, a, that's an interesting moment in and of itself. Meanwhile, as you point out, that for less educated Americans, it's actually much more common to not, for, for not get married and certainly not to have children inside marriage. So the non-marital birth rate among non-college educated Americans, as you say, is now above 50%. Now, what does, so if we assume that fathers matter and then it turns out as you just alluded to, there's good evidence that fathers matter. Interestingly, especially, you know, there's really good evidence they matter to teens, especially. Like, so you're coming up to this point, Andrew, right? You've mattered all along, but you're going to matter even more over the next few years. It's my time to yes. shine coming up, it's Richard. Like, <laughs> here comes Andrew, because it just, for whatever reason, I mean, dads matter throughout childhood, but, but I sometimes fear the way we talk about kids is that we think it's game over at the, at the age of five, right? Uh, and we, we, we ignore the huge importance of adolescence, which is actually look, looks like dads might have a, sort of some sort of special powers when it comes to adolescence. Well, I certainly had no special powers when it came to infants. <laughs> right. Well, your special, your special power might be to, is to just be there doing your bit. But the so the, so fathers matter involve fathers matter. So uh, and what we see is this real rise in fatherlessness in other words, the kids who who don't see who don't see their father. So within uh, within six years of their parents separating, a third of American kids never see their father. Yeah, and crazy. another third, and another Terrible. third, seeing once a month or less. And so, what happens as the relationship between the parents breaks down, or perhaps didn't exist in the first place, the relationship, the relationship that, that gets that gets destroyed is the one between the father and the kids. And if the father's not a breadwinner in particular, he basically gets benched, right? So, if we continue to see the role of the father as this married breadwinner, and increasingly men are neither, neither of those, certainly not that sole breadwinner anymore. I mean, women are the breadwinner in more than 40%, main breadwinner in more than 40% of households. So what we do is we end up benching the dads. And so what, what a lot of social conservatives would say is that's why we need to bring back marriage, right? The way to tie men to children is through marriage, right? We need to restore marriage. Well, A, I don't know how we're going to do that. B, I think that's the genius out of the bottle on that. And so what I think we need to do instead is build fatherhood up as an independent social institution. Fatherhood needs to be put back on a pedestal, just a different kind of pedestal. And we need to say to dads and communicate through policy to dads, and I have some ideas on that, that you matter as a dad, period. 
not just as a not just a breadwinner. We all too often treat fathers as walking ATMs, particularly in our child support system, and forget about the relationship between the fathers and children. And that 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 not only matters even if the father's not living with the kid, but especially if they're not. I found one really interesting study that found that kids whose parents are separated, but they have a strong uh, relationship with their father and spend a lot of time with their father, actually do better than households where the father is present, but they never see them and they have a very distant relationship. Yeah, that was a, a compelling study. I was yeah. like, wow, a, a good dad outside that home who actually shows yeah. up and cares it's, is better than the present dad who yeah. is totally checked out. So, and that, <laughs> like, like that, that was Because I actually thought having a dad in the house was like an intrinsic win. Well, that study well I, think, showed, yeah, I think, look, I think it is to the extent, if the dad's in the house, it's obviously easier for him, for him to have a closer relationship, right? So I wouldn't deny it makes it easier. But what it exposes is that what's really going on here is it's the relationship. And so this idea of absent present and absent father can't just be described by, is he living with the mother or not, right? Actually, I, my, my first marriage ended in divorce. So I have a child from, uh, from my first marriage, and I was an incredibly involved father um, with my eldest child, very, very um, strongly in his life. It took a lot, but it, of course it was harder. It took a lot of work. And I think the problem is if, if, yeah. we, if we continue to say it must be married, must be living with the mom, when that's just not the case for so many now. In fact, it's only the minority of American kids now who will, who will grow up th- throughout their childhood with both biological parents. And so, look, this is, yeah, this is the world too. as it is. And again, I, having made these massive changes to family structure, I don't think we can just sort of turn back the clock. And in the meantime, we're just leaving too many kids without a strong enough relationship with the father. So equal pa- equal paid leave for mothers and fathers and a really radical reform by child support system that, that, that really has not kept pace with the changes in families in the US. Now, one of the major changes you champion is that the same way philanthropists uh, and elected officials get excited about women in STEM, we should get excited about men and mm. heal. Men can heal, where heal stands for healthcare, education, administration, and literacy. Uh, and you make this really, really uh, striking comparison that there are more jet fighter pilots who are women uh, at this point on a percentage basis than there are kindergarten teachers mm-hmm. that are men. <laughs> Many more. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and and that male teacher uh, pays off in, in various ways. And so uh, we want to try and make it so that men can go into the classroom, the hospital, other environments that are considered right now sort of the domain of women, um, uh, I suppose, in part because these sectors, one, need men, uh, but two, these industries are much less subject to automation. Uh, they're much more resilient. Uh, they, they have much more uh, sustainable long-term prospects. Yeah, and it's interesting how, how you frame this argument. Like, what's the, what's the most compelling way to argue for the need for more men in these professions, the, the, the heel professions as opposed to STEM. It's worth saying that even as we've increased the number of women in STEM, with, with further to go, for sure, we've at least tripled uh, the number of women. I think it's up to 27, 28% women in STEM now, up from like 7 or 8%. Um, the number of, the share of men in those heel professions has actually dropped. And so fewer K-12 teachers are men. Only 24% of K-12 teachers are men now, down from 33% in the early 80s. Only one in 10 elementary school teachers. And you're quite right, as a share of the profession, there are at least twice as many women flying U.S. military jets as there are men teaching kindergarten. And I actually think that from a social welfare perspective, it's more important to have men in kindergarten classes than it is to have women flying fighter jets. I mean, I, 
I'd like as many women flying fighter jets as we can get. But interesting, we're redesigning the cockpits of our military planes to be more inclusive so that people of particularly of different heights can, can so, which would actually help short men as well, by the way. But, but it, the, because it was excluding so many women, but I don't see us really re redesigning or spending much time to try and get more men into our classrooms. And so there's just an asymmetry here. And I started off thinking, look, the main reason to get more men into those jobs is because of employment prospects for them. And I still think that's true for the reasons you just said. But I think actually in some ways the more compelling argument is because we want the people using those services, whether they're healthcare, education, counseling, social care, to have the option of having a caring of the same sex. It's been really striking to me how many people are like, yeah, I, 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 I try and choose a school where there are more male teachers. That's what we did. My dad is in a care home. And when he needs to go to the bathroom, he actually prefers a guy to help him. But there are no guys. And one of the ones that's really, really troubling me, given the mental health problems that, that we have in this country and that you've talked quite a lot about, is the drop in the number of male psychologists. So if you go back just to 1980, psychology was roughly 50-50. Uh, it's now 29% male, having dropped from 39% just in the last decade. And among psychologists under the age of 30, only 5% are male. So if you, if you roll that forward, and if you think if you think it's important to have counselors and psychologists, mental health professionals of both sexes, and I think it is, I think it's, it's important, right? When I went to a therapist, the issues I was dealing with, it was definitely better than I was with a man. And and when you know some of my own sons have had uh, had issues and have had to seek some you know mental health support, definitely better with a man. <laughs> now it, that's not going to be true for everybody, but. Pretty soon, that's going to be really hard to find. And so I think that just from the point of view of like caring, these caring professions are caring for men and women, boys and girls. And so it would be good if we had if we had men in those roles, like in schools, for example. Most school yes. counselors are women. Most special needs teachers are women. Um, but most of the people referred to special needs are men. Most substance abuse counselors are women. Most of the people referred to substance abuse counseling are men. And so there's these there's these real disparities between the provider and the user of those services. And so I think that that's a really good reason why we should be you know, throwing money at this. I, I, here's the controversial bit. I think we should have male only scholarships to get men into some of these professions. We should have subsidies for employers that are diversifying their workforce by hiring more men, just as we've done to get more women into STEM. We should be willing to invest money and time and political capital getting men into these heel jobs. It's so important that you are trying to champion these measures that I think are necessary in order for us to to address uh, the the structural problems. It's already happening at the college level, and you referred to it that colleges are trying to keep men above forty percent, um, and there is some putting of thumbs on the scales, <laughs> by, by the way. Like there's some data that shows that if they all of a sudden like aren't allowed to 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 tweak then the percentage of men mm -hmm. drops. Like there, there were a couple of yeah. studies uh, or a couple of schools maybe that said, okay, you're not allowed to consider it. Then all of a sudden, so so we're already doing it softly. We're doing it quietly. Um, and in many ways, what your work is allowing us to do is just to face facts. Mm -hmm. Be like, okay, guys, look, if we want more guys in the classroom, probably going to have to spend some money on it. We want more guys, psychologists, going to have to spend some money on it. Want, you know, want some tech, 
uh, an apprenticeship and uh, vocational and apprenticeship schools that are going to help men. We should probably spend the money on it. Uh, and men uh, need it in various uh, various mm. contexts. One of the the chapters you wrote that was a tough one to read um, was the situation for black men. And when you hear the word intersectionality, um, right, like the the things that come to my mind uh, are not black men right now. Um, that that it, it it's used to talk about how uh, racism and sexism uh, intersect. Uh, sometimes sexual orientation as well. But you make a compelling case that black men are really being subject to a mm. double whammy, um, and that it's going to be impossible for us to make meaningful progress writ large um, on something like closing racial disparities without specific measures targeting black men. Pretty much every gender gap we've already talked about is just amplified um, when it comes to black men and women. So there's already two college degrees going to black women for every one going to black men. Black, uh, the wages of black men have barely moved uh, in the last few decades. White, white women, meanwhile, have blown right past them. So for every dollar earned by a white woman, a black man earns 84 cents, which is about the same as the gender pay gap between men and women. And so that's where that's that's a classic example of intersectional analysis, because what you're looking at there is and race and gender. Of course, black women earn a little bit less than black men, although the gender gap is much, much smaller in terms of earnings. And actually, there are more black women in the workforce than men. Already, black women are the breadwinner in most black households, the main breadwinner in most black households, partly because of the, some of the family trends that you discussed earlier. But I think that like the, the way intersectionality is applied and how it ought to be applied is what you're getting at there, because there is a sense that intersectionality is just like a game of stack it up, right? So you just keep adding stack, 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 and, and you get you know X points for being female, X points, whatever, and, then, and it's just cumulative. But properly applied, which I don't think many of the intersectional theorists do, and even Kimberly Crenshaw herself, who coined the term and works, I don't think she applies her own theory to its fullest extent, because what it means is that you should look at the specific circumstances of different groups and see how their gender, say, or their race plays out. And when it comes to black Americans, for me, the evidence is pretty clear that on most measures, black men are worse off than black women. And not despite being men, but very often because they're male. They face all kinds of bias, all kinds of exclusion. Obviously, they face the incarceration, highest incarceration risks, um, particularly during the war on drugs and the war on crime. Uh, in education, they are basically the ones who are struggling the most, um, compared, whereas black women are actually doing pretty well. Upwards mobility, black men are the least upwardly mobile groups. This is back to some of my earlier work. Black women are one of the most upwardly mobile groups out of the bottom quintile. But then, of course, in terms of households, they often struggle. So, in fact, the, tr the struggles of black men affect black women, don't get me wrong. But I think that's intersectionality at its best. And what it means is that we can contemplate the fact that black men might be actually suffering as a result of being male rather than benefiting from being male. That may not be true for Asian men or white men, or at least you know, nothing like the same extent. Then you could add class, then you could add geography. But what I think that it means is that we just have to look at specific groups. And if we're serious about looking at groups who are struggling and we don't take seriously the particular situation of black men and boys 
And I don't think we're being serious at all. Yeah, you, you mentioned this uh, White House Commission on Gender Inequality, um, and it's all about issues that are facing women, uh, it, despite this this relatively uh, benign name that seems like it, it would uh, it would address any form of inequality. And, and I think maybe your most important contribution is to expand gender inequality to apply to boys and men in certain contexts. Um, which is not the way right. a lot of people use it. I mean, uh, a lot, the way a lot of people use it is that, hey, um, we have to help women and girls, which, by yeah. the way, I'm for in environments where we that... still need it. We can think two thoughts at once, right? I, I mean, I, to be to be fair, so what happened was that the Council on Women and Girls was abolished by Donald Trump, and then rather than recreating that, they created the Council on Gen- Gender Policy Council, which actually did seem to open the door to looking at gender inequalities that, that run the other way. Some, many of which we've discussed, but that didn't happen. So there's the first national strategy on gender equality has been published, and it doesn't contain a single gender inequality that runs against men and boys. So it is completely asymmetric. I think that's both wrong empirically for the reasons that we've been discussing, but I also think it's just a massively missed political opportunity. Like even to have even just have a few areas where you say, well, look, here is here is a place where actually boys and men are on the wrong side of the inequality, and here's what we're going to do about that would really have blunted the attack The I think, the centre-left face, which is that they don't care about boys and men. Like the, the way to blunt that attack is to show that you care about boys and men. Uh, and the Gender Policy Council was a real opportunity to do that. And thus far, it's been a completely missed opportunity, in my view. You talk about the dysfunctional approaches on both sides, where the, the progressive uh, side wants to um, ignore... Uh, anything that that runs afoul of uh, a narrative that's uh, you know that that men are um, advantaged, uh, and then conservatives are just trying to turn back the clock and don't have any productive um, policy solutions. And a lot of it hinges upon how how much you see the role of biology, like whether there are intrinsic differences between boys and girls. And you make, I think, the very reasonable argument that yes, there are genuine biological differences between boys and girls uh, related to risk and um, testosterone aggression uh, and uh, uh, sex, um, but they're not all consuming dispositive, right. like, you know, like that they can be addressed and moderated by culture. Um, and that there, that there is not, not necessarily the word toxic in front of the word masculinity right. <laughs> like in, in, in every case, like, like there's actually, there has to be a definition of masculinity that uh, is positive. Um, uh, and I, I think that's what most people want. It's one of the major problems in my view of the current polarized environment um, is that again, you can't hold two thoughts in your head. Like you can say that, look, boys and girls are different, um, but it's not that we need to accept every difference as carved in stone and that there are things that you can do in terms of structure, institutions, policy, culture, et cetera. Yeah, I think I think you put it exactly right, which is that on the there's this, a, a fear, I think, particularly among progressives and the center left, that even acknowledging any differences in biology, just you've given up the farm, right? If you give them an inch, they'll 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 take they'll take a mile. And I and to be I to be understanding of that view is because historically, of course, but discussions of biological difference have been used as arguments against women. They have been used to justify sexist policies. You know, and so I understand the concern, but I also I also think that it ends up being self-defeating to, to, to deny any differences at all, because anybody that's like been in the world 
<laughs> realizes that's not true. <laughs> Certainly, I was raised kids, like or been a kid or seen a kid. <laughs> Which should so be all no, of us. That's yes. most people, in my <laughs> view. Um, no, is there are these differences? The question is, how much weight do you put on them? How much do they matter, etc. And so you get the, the, the so the left, and they they play off each other. So the more the left denies any differences in biology, the more the right emphasizes that they are everything, right? That they're everything's binary, and by God, we're completely different. And that's why women should that's why women should stay at home and look after the kids, and men should be president and you know commander in chief and stuff. And so yeah, this is it's incredibly boring tiresome kind of discussion because the truth is that of course it's both nature and nurture and more importantly recognizing that there are some natural differences and you've just highlighted some of them doesn't in any way mean culture is less important it means it's more important because culture is one of the ways that we learn how to express or not to express these natural differences how to bring out the good side of some of those traits whilst acknowledging and dampening the bad sides of those traits so culture is how you grow up uh, and so uh, the acknowledgement of nature makes it even more important to take culture more seriously and so let's take one of your examples like risk taking on average boys and men are a bit more risk taking they're, they're more willing and able to take risks is that a good or a bad thing neither sometimes it's good because men are willing to put their lives on the line um, they actually they're more willing to die to save the life of a stranger. Is that a good thing? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good thing. But is it good when they're a teenager and they do as one of our friends' kids did and climb up a eight-story crane and then send an Instagram, a Snapchat saying, hey, hi, mom. No, no not good. Um, or some of, the, some of the ways in which men take bad risks with their health, that's bad. Is it good or bad in business that men are a bit more risk-taking? Well, it's good in the sense that sometimes those risks pay off, but it's bad and it creates instability. And so... What we do as a society is we take these differences that overlap and are on average, uh, acknowledge them, and then try to try to bring out the best in us, whether that's masculine or feminine, uh, whilst perhaps trying to manage down the worst. And honestly, every human society ever has been engaged in that cultural task. And I don't, I think it's incredibly arrogant of us to think that we somehow don't have to do that, and we don't have to think about what a pro-social masculinity looks like because every other human society has tried to do it. And now we have to do it in a way that's not only compatible with gender equality, but supportive of gender equality. That's what most people want. Most people don't want to wash away the differences. They just don't want the differences to become excuses for inequality. Yeah, pro-social masculinity indeed. Uh, and one thing you said in the book, which I agree with, is like, look, you can't ask men not to be men. You just have to try and define masculinity in a way that uh, it is positive for them and women uh, and society. Yeah, regards. and that, that's what's being lost in the current debate, I think, because on the one hand, there's a sense of masculinity is intrinsically bad, right? And and no one, to my knowledge, has come up with a satisfactory definition of non-toxic masculinity that is distinct from femininity. They just can't do it. And so it becomes a slur, honestly, to say toxic masculinity. It doesn't help to create what I think is important, which is mature masculinity. And actually, I think I think what we're seeing now is a celebration, particularly on the right, of an immature form of masculinity. I think Donald Trump was like an avatar. And I yeah, kept thinking, true. like, who does Donald Trump remind me of? And then I and then I realized it was my 16-year-old sons and my 16-year-old self. There was a sort of wow. middle finger, transgressive, boorish, kind of just like uncivilized. And and actually it's it's to our great shame that that's appealing to some people um, because it's so transgressive. 
Well, I think of him as the crazy uncle, uh, but sixteen-year-old works too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, you're right, but it does, to some extent, it's like the men who don't grow up, right? We need grown-up men as well as grown-up women, and we don't get that by calling them toxic or, or rolling our eyes at them or caricaturing them or stereotyping them. We we get that by taking seriously the institutions in our society that help help us all to mature and become, you know become better, better human beings in the end is what we're after. And to the extent that we are different as male and female, well, uh, let's acknowledge that without turning it into some sort of, uh, as you say, dispositive uh, characteristic. Richard, I am so happy that you wrote this book and that you're making this case. Um, What has excited you or invigorated you about the reaction to it? What has the reaction been? Um, I'm going to say you are the most significant think tank intellectual figure to point out these facts uh your stature is such that you know the new york times and others are are reckoning with the the argument i think you might have the chance to mainstream the fact that boys and men are struggling and that it's a thing that we should be trying to address in, in a way that perhaps no one else has had that opportunity um, how have people been reacting to your work? Well, first of all, thank you, thank you for saying that, Andrew. Not only because it's very, it's a, a huge compliment, but also because it does speak to really one of the motivations for the book. There is a book is about creating content. Here's all these ideas. Here's these facts. You know, here's this. Here's these studies I've read. But honestly, I also think it's very about creating space. And one of my hopes and goals for the book has been to create a bigger space within which we can have this conversation and to some extent a safer space within which to have this conversation because it can't be dismissed as hopefully can't be dismissed as the frothy ravings of some you know men's right fringy person uh, at least not yet let's ask me ask me back in a few months <laughs> but so far let's not give them any ideas richard <laughs> but so far that's right and you're right to some extent i have a bit of insulation uh coming out of the gate around that i've been incredibly pleased by the way in which i've had engagement from left and right um, but i've probably been most pleased by the substantive nature of the disagreements from the left what has not happened is that just has not just been dismissed um as just like we don't have to engage with this and so you've mentioned the times but david brooks had a column in the times that sort of praised the book very well and said he doesn't talk about culture enough but michelle goldberg had a piece in the times that that said actually that essentially said good social democracy would solve a lot of these problems and they spend far too much time on culture and not enough on redistribution but what was striking about that she said look everyone knows there's a problem here Really? <laughs> right. It's not like, well, uh, so, okay. I mean, honestly, that's a huge moment. That's a huge win. Um, and so the argument I'm having so far with people is, is about whether or not I've got the right solutions, whether I frame it in the right way. But no one's really tried to claim this is just made up, you know, misogynistic nonsense. And so that in and of itself, I think, is a really interesting sign. My own view is that there's a real appetite for a proper conversation about this that hasn't been on offer, for, certainly from mainstream politics, um, but that actually ordinary people, all classes, all races, are actually really open to this conversation, so long as it's had in a good faith way, you know, get our facts straight, we can argue about, we can argue about the solutions. 
Um, but it's time to get serious about this. Uh, and I, I'm sensing so far the response. Yeah. Past and, and again, Andrew, you've written about this yourself. And so I think you helped to create, you, you yourself have helped to create the conditions in which this book can land. Um, but I, I'm, I'm really pleased with the seriousness of the engagement, especially with the disagreements. Because if we're seriously disagreeing about what to do about this, that's huge progress. Has anyone suggested uh, a policy or solution where they said, hey, hey, I don't like your red shirt idea. Instead, we should do this or that. Like, has anyone actually suggested something where you're like, yeah, th that's a good idea? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that gets suggested a lot in education is single sex schooling. Um, but actually, I, I looked at that and I just don't I just don't find very strong evidence that it makes interesting really interesting. seem to move the needle very much uh, and it's obviously a much more radical reform than redshirting i mean sending boys to the same school like it's pretty doable redshirting is pretty doable you just freaking just as a parent it. as a parent i could have yeah. chilled with the kids for another year you know or like just like found, found yeah. an environment i mean you know like that there are pre-k's now you just have them there for an extra year it's, it's tractable but actually one of the uh, one of one interesting idea that someone had is that they suggested that like there's these huge gaps in high school gpa uh, by gender of course high school gpa is becoming more important in terms of college admissions as colleges go test optional so boys and girls are basically they're dead dead level now in sat and act um so but girls are way ahead in gpa um and and on most other measures of high school performance and so actually gpa is becoming more important but someone said to me that actually that, that ninth grade is where boys uh really seem to struggle uh, and i've yet to sort of really nail down the data on this so what but they said that's where you see a big gap opening up so how about just ignoring ninth grade <laughs> and and just doing high school GPA based on the grades after that when boys are apparently doing a little bit better. And having had kids who managed to get, a, a, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but managed to get sub two GPAs in their freshman year at high school, uh, right? It's hard to recover your high school GPA from that, right? I, I, I have at least two out of three sons who would have done much better if we'd just, we'd called ninth grade a watch, just said, let's ignore ninth grade. That's an interesting little idea. I I am I am for right. this. I am for both. Let's redshirt them and let's just X out ninth grade from from GPAs. Like you know, you're too too raw. You're running away from the seniors. Yeah. Who the heck knows? <laughs> and also, let's try some of these things and then evaluate them. I mean, like you're you're a wonk too at heart, I think, Andrew. And so I think let's pilot some of these ideas and then you know see what seems see what seems to work. There's some stuff like technical high schools where the evidence is already pretty good. I think it's good. It's good enough. So there's some things where if like if President Biden called me after this and said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to redshirt every boy in the US, I'd say, hold on, let's let's just pilot it first. Let's just see. But if he called me up and said, OK, I'm going to spend five billion to create more technical high schools, I'd say go for it. You'd be like, heck, yes, let's go. Yeah. yeah. So I do think like the evidence for some of it, you know, we have to be clear that in some cases we just haven't done enough of it to get good enough evidence. And because redshirting hasn't really been pursued as a deliberate policy, we would need to do a bit more evaluation. But technical high schools, apprenticeships, you know, paid leave for dads, the evidence is in, right? But those those I would be like, yes, Mr. President, let's go for it. And you know, who knows? My, my, my phone might ring right now, Andrew, and it could be President Biden saying, I, I read your- I, I hope so. I mean, shoot, man, if I if, if I were our president, you'd uh, all of the stuff would be happening, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, men in Heel, I think the, the data is also yes. very, very clear. Uh, my my work, Richard, is so that your work actually becomes the dominant 
uh, discourse and approach to things. Um, because right now, that what what makes me so sad is that you have this inchoate. Uh, polarization and people like, you know, know this, know that. And meanwhile, uh, like our families are suffering. And and you you said it in your book, you said, look, parents are just worried about our kids. Uh, you know, Americans are worried about their families. And then our leaders are stuck in these partisan positions and roles that have less and less to do with what the heck is happening on the ground and, and what's going to be good for uh, us and our communities. Um, so my work in life right now is to try and improve the political environment to a point where uh, the policies you're fighting for become the law of the land, in fact, and common sense. It's like there, there are so many things where, you know, you're pointing out all these things that are happening to boys and men. I mean, they've been uh, creeping up and, and rising for years and years. Um, I mean, what Michelle Goldberg said about a social democracy would that was healthy would have been addressing these things uh, is totally right. Um, so just kudos to you for an incredibly important contribution. Uh, I hope everyone picks up of boys and men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. And Richard, anything that we can do to help you uh, with your work, please do let us know, because I, I see this message uh, and your now mainstreaming this set of concerns as one of the most important things going on in American life. Thank you very much for having me on, Andrew, and thank you for those words. I really appreciate it.